Part two, section one of the Autobiography of Cockney Tom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Len Nicholson. The Autobiography of Cockney Tom by Thomas Bastard. Part two, section one. I was rather surprised to find Adelaide such a miserable-looking place. But that was in 1853. It is very different now. I failed at first in getting work, and found that house-rent was high and food dear. I thought I would dine at a pub, for there were no restaurants where one could get a good feed for one shilling in those days. I had to pay two and sixpence for my meal, which rather astonished my weak nerves. Almost in despair I took up the daily paper and saw the following advertisement. Wanted a conductor for the Star Concert Hall. I think I understand that business, said I to myself, so I called to see what it was like. The landlord told me I might come that night and let him hear what sort of singer I was. I next waited on the dean, and presented a letter to him from the bishop's brother in England to Bishop Short of Adelaide. The dean read the letter, and told me it was simply asking him to find employment for me, and that I might call on him again, as the bishop had gone to England, and he would see what could be done for me and my family. But he never asked me to sit down, or whether I wanted any assistance, although he was told that I had a wife and six children on board the ship William Stuart. I left the dean with a broken spirit, for I had expected to have been received kindly by the clergy of the church that I had endeavoured to serve with all sincerity in the old country. As night came on, I found my way into a shoemaker's shop, and asking for employment I was told that there was scarcely any work to be done, as nearly all the men were at the diggings in Victoria, and that Adelaide was like a deserted village. The shoemaker kindly advanced me five shillings, and told me to repay it when I got work. I did so and afterwards the same man became bankrupt and was so reduced in circumstances that he had to go to the destitute asylum where he died but i never forgot the old shoemaker and his five shillings my first song was sung at the concert hall it was a long room and would hold about one hundred people a big chair at the end for the conductor who with piano and violin players made up the company of artists engaged amateurs did the rest when I entered the room I found it full of smoke and lots of drink going on, and the landlord was acting as chairman. He possessed a fine baritone voice, and sang several of Russell's songs in good style, and subsequently played the flute and cornet with good taste, which told me that I had no bad judge to sing to. After a time the chairman rose and said, "'Gentlemen, we have here to-night a gentleman from London, who will oblige us with a little harmony.' Cries of bravo came from all sides of the room. I went up to the piano and asked the player if he knew such airs, but to which he replied in broken English that he had never heard them. He was a German, and a very bad accompanist, so I sang without music one of my favourite songs, Give Me a Cot in the Valley I Love, and as I sang I thought of my dear wife on board and broke down. I sat down and felt thoroughly ashamed of myself. I had nothing to drink, and altogether felt quite ill. Presently a gold-digger came in and sat down by my side. "'What are you drinking?' he asked. "'I'm not drinking at all,' said I. "'Then I'm going to shout,' he replied. "'Have a glass of hot brandy with me. It will set you all right.' 
I consented, and the digger narrated some strange stories about the diggings. I was listening at the same time to some comic songs that seemed to please the company better than the sentimental ones. A very good violinist then showed up, and I called to him to have a chat with me. I told him that I was also a professional, and asked him to accompany me in a comic song. With pleasure, said he. Do you know the first figure in the Irish quadrilles? Yes, said he. Can you play in the key of D? Yes, said he. All right, I replied, and began to feel quite a new man. The brandy began to operate, and when I felt its stimulating effects, I rose to my feet. The chairman called to order, and I said, Mr. Conductor and gentlemen, I find that I made a great mistake in my first effort, and if you will give me another trial, I will endeavour to make amends, and will sing you a song of my own composing. All attention, said the conductor. The fiddler and the pianist played an introduction, and I commenced to sing, and the company began to laugh. Everyone was delighted, and I had to sing it over three times. The landlord then sent for me and said, What will you take to drink? Come and take the chair and consider yourself engaged. You shall stay here tonight and breakfast with me in the morning, and then we will settle about salary and other matters. I went to bed that night in better spirits than I had expected, and the next morning, being Sunday, I prepared for church to return thanks to my maker for my safe voyage. I had dinner with my new master and agreed to sing every night, Sundays excepted, for three months at one pound ten shillings per week with board and lodging. I signed an agreement to that effect, and was sorry afterwards that I had done so. The next day I went to the port to see if the ship was in, and was informed that she would not be in for some time, on account of low tide. I was very much disappointed at this, especially as it cost me twenty shillings to be taken from the shore to the ship and back again, which I could ill afford. I returned to town, and wrote a letter to my wife, telling her all the news, and promising to be at the port when the ship came into harbour. After this I took my nightly seat as conductor, and the place was always crowded. I now began to feel myself at home again, and I made all sorts of acquaintances, some of whom I did not care for. I was next offered an engagement at a concert room at salary of one pound per night, which owing to my engagement I was obliged to refuse. I next took a house, not far from the hall, at a rent of twenty-five shillings per week, so as to have a home to take my wife and children to when they got on shore. I brought some furniture, a load of wood, and such other things that were necessary for a commencement new home. The days seemed like months to me, till the ship was in port. The next day I was up early, and being anxious went down to the port in first cart, for there were no railways in those days, nor was it anything unusual for the port cart to be upset, and for all the passengers to be pitched out in the road and in those primitive days colonists thought very little of such adventures, which only served to produce a little excitement and interest in the otherwise monotonous round of their everyday life. The vessel got into port in the afternoon, and I went on board and bid the captain and doctor good-bye, took my wife, children, and luggage on shore, engaged a drayman, loaded up the dray, placed my wife and children on top, and started for town, which we reached at dark. There was then no gas, only dismal oil lamps, and everything looked wretched at night. I took them home, and left my wife crying when I had to go to my engagement, but promised to be home as soon as possible, and did so. Got up the next morning and chopped wood, a job I was not good at, and went to market and found everything very dear. 
After a time I got a little work to do mending old boots, a thing I had not done for years. My wife did her best to get on. She took a family's washing, and we used to fetch it four miles and a half, and take it home again when it was done. So time went on. The wife, however, did not like the neighbourhood we lived in, so to please her I took a house in North Adelaide with a shop front, and worked in the shop, as I called it, but had no stock except my wife and children, shoemaker's tools, and some leather I had brought with me. It so happened one day while I was at work that two men passing stopped and looked in. "'How do you do, shopmate?' said one of them, whom we will call Mr. Sweet William, a gentleman from whom in after days I received many favours, which I take this opportunity of acknowledging and bearing testimony to his kindliness of heart and superiority of intellect. His claim to mental ability, however, does not require any confirmation of mine, as he has, unaided by his own talents, worked himself up commercially to one of the leading positions of our city, and politically to the high honour of being a minister of the crown. As a public speaker, few can surpass him, and in kindly sympathy he has few equals in Adelaide. The profits of his great literary success, Lights and Shadows of London Life, have been entirely devoted to charitable purposes, and the widow and orphan have had good cause to bless this exercise of his mental activity. Also his exertions in aid of the Blind, Deaf and Dumb Institution at Brighton, and many other charitable institutions, bear better proof than anything I can say to his benevolent disposition. Last, but not least, the assistance he kindly lent me in establishing the Turkish baths in Adelaide, an undoubted blessing to our citizens, as supplying a necessity and a luxury for their use, which I now gratefully acknowledge. The other was a Mr. Johns. How long have you been out? said Mr. Johns. Nearly two months, said I. How do you like the climate? said Mr. Sweet William. Rather hot at times, said I. We have only been out a week, said he. We live at the corner up the street. You come from London, I'll swear. I came from Bermondsey, said Mr. Jones. Call in and see us when you are passing. We brought out a stock of boots and shoes. Perhaps we may be able to do some business together, said they. I agreed to do so when passing. Where do you go in the evening, asked they. I sing at the Star Hall, said I. I am a professional singer, you must know. We will come and hear you, said they. We like a good song. All right, good morning. I called accordingly, and had a look over the stock. They advised me to take a shop, and put up my name as shoemaker from London. Can't we do some business together, said Mr. Jones? I'll give you credit if you have no money. I'll think over it, said I. They attended the concert, and were very much pleased at my singing. Mr. Sweet William sang several very funny comic songs. Mr. Johns made himself quite at home, and told me that he would call in next morning. I consulted my wife about getting into debt. She wisely suggested to take fifty pounds worth on sale or return, and I did so. Mr. Johns stipulated that I was to settle up once a month. I selected my stock, made a show of goods, and sold two pairs the first day, and felt that I had struck a load, as the diggers would say. All went on smoothly enough for some time. I increased my stock till it amounted to two hundred pounds, and kept up my payments too. Everybody had confidence in me. My engagement was then up, and the landlord wanted me to renew it, but I said, No, I have been offered a pound a night to sing, and it won't pay me to do it for two pounds a week. I'll give you more, said he, but I declined, having something else in my head, and that was to try my luck at gold digging on the Melbourne side. 
I consulted my wife about it. Go by all means, Thomas, said she, if you think you will be lucky. This being settled, before starting I called on my friends, including Mr. Sweet William and Mr. Johns, who gave me advice as to what I should do when I got there, which advice turned out to be all bunkum, for they had not been there themselves, and as a matter of course they knew nothing about it. I had two neighbours who had also the gold fever. They had a little money, and asked me to make one of their party. Seeing no objection to this, I agreed to take them as mates, and accordingly we all got ready, went to the port, and took our berths on board the steamboat Havilla, bound for Melbourne. The passage money then for the steerage was seven pounds each. Now you can go for two. My eldest son Jack and many friends, so-called, that could drink nobblers at my expense, went down to the port to see us off. The captain was a friend of mine, and had been the chief mate of the William Stewart that brought me out from England, so he wanted for nothing during the trip round, which was a very pleasant one. We arrived safely in Melbourne on a Saturday night at dark. There was a great rush to the wharf by the sailors, as they wanted to get rid of their cargo, and I nearly lost the best of my things by a mistake. We first went down Collins Street, and saw the city coffee-house, with board and lodgings for travellers. We went in and took tea at one shilling and sixpence each, made arrangements to lodge there, put our things away, and then took a stroll about Melbourne, and found the buildings there were superior to those in Adelaide. Got home early and went to bed, but not to sleep. The mosquitoes were too numerous, for there could not, as some lodger remarked, have been a single one in the house. They must have been all married and with large families. Up early next morning, and took a walk to the Chinaman's camping grounds, and tried in vain to converse with them. Returned to our café, had breakfast, went to church, but did not think much of the singing there. In the afternoon took a long walk, returned, had tea, and then to bed early, thinking to have a good night's rest. But I suppose we must have been very wicked, as there was no rest for us that night. The mosquitoes mustered in full force, and laid siege to our faces, so that in the morning we hardly knew each other. So much for the city coffee-house. Got up and went in search of fresh lodgings, and got them in Little Burke Street. Found a singing-room, and got an engagement to sing two or three songs a night, at a salary of two pound a week, from seven till nine o'clock. There was dancing afterwards till two and three o'clock in the morning but I had nothing to do with that part of the business. I got work as a shopman in a large boot-and-shoe warehouse at a salary of four pounds per week, and might have saved money in Melbourne, but I was determined to go further and try my luck at the diggings. I had a letter of introduction to a very respectable man and his family in Melbourne, from a dear friend of theirs in Adelaide. They received me as if I had been a brother, invited me to supper, and asked me to bring my mates also, as they intended to give a party. I accepted the invitation, and made myself up for the occasion, and introduced my friend, Jim the Fiddler, as I will call him in the future. He was a good player. There was a good supper provided. After supper, a little music was proposed, and everybody said, Hear, hear! Fiddler Jim played Scotch tunes with variations, which gave immense pleasure. After that, nothing would do but that I must sing, with violin accompaniment, the following song that had gained me much applause in London. I miss thee, my mother, thine image is still, the deepest impressed on my heart. Thy tablet so faithful, I in death must be chilled, ere a line of that vision depart. Thou wert torn from my sight when I treasured thee most, when my reason could measure thy worth. 
and I know but too well that the idol I lost could ne'er be replaced upon earth. A Yankee gentleman present began to cry. He had left home when a boy, and had not heard from his mother since. I also sang some comic songs, which by the aid of a little grog made them all merry. My new friends were very strict Roman Catholics, and they persuaded me to attend the cathedral with them to hear the grand music and their imposing ceremonies, which at once put me in mind of St. Barnabas's. They afterwards introduced me to their priest, who was greatly affected with my account of St. Barnabas's, and remarked that I was as good a Catholic as himself. After a short time they persuaded me to be conditionally received into their church. My kind friends put themselves about to witness the ceremony, and wanted me to stop in Melbourne, and not to go to the diggings at all, and offered to lend me three hundred pounds to go into business with, to be paid back by instalments with small interest. This I declined with thanks, and made up my mind to go in search of the precious metal. So I and my mates gave notice to leave to our employers the following week. Fiddler Jim was a painter, and George was a plumber and gasfitter, and henceforth he will be called Plumber George. Before starting from Melbourne for Forest Creek diggings, we went into committee to see what money we had. After fitting ourselves out as diggers, with blue guernseys, knee-boots, pistols, tin pannikins, etc., we started on our journey, walked a few miles out of Melbourne, and got hungry. We stopped and took breakfast, paying for it three shillings each, and believing that a nobbler would not hurt us, we called for three, for which we paid very reluctantly one shilling each. We called a council of ways and means, for it was plain at that rate of charges we should not have sufficient money to take us halfway to Forest Creek. It was agreed, therefore, to reduce ourselves down to two meals per day instead of three, two drinks ditto instead of three, and push on as fast as we could. We reached Keeler Plains, a wild-looking country, not a tree to be seen, while the sun was so hot that it burnt the skin off our faces. It was getting dark when we arrived at the township of Keeler, which consisted in the year 1854 of two stores, butcher's shop, and restaurant, where we put up for the night. It was dreadful what we had to pass through that night, for it rained so hard that it came in and ran down our mattresses, which were on the ground. I got such a cold that I thought I had quite lost my voice. My mates were also very ill. We started early for the next town, Gisborne, at the foot of Mount Macedon, near the entrance to the Black Forest, and arrived there about dinner-time very hungry, but afraid to have anything, as our funds were getting very low. We sat in committee outside the Forest Inn. Fiddler Jim said he wished that we were back in Adelaide. So do I, said Plumber George. I'll see what the diggings are like first, said I. How are we to get there? asked they. Fear not, but trust in Providence, I replied, and just at that moment a gentleman rode up on horseback. I went up to him and said, Shall I hold your horse, sir? My good man, he said, it is the first time that I have been asked such a question since I have been in Victoria. The fact is, sir, said I, my mates and I are rather hard up, and are on our way to the diggings, and have but very little money. He dismounted, and handed me the reins. I will not be long, said he, and he was not many minutes settling his business, and then he came to me and slipped five shillings into my hand. I thanked the gentleman, and ran to my mates. Fiddler Jim said he would starve before he would do such a thing. Plumber George thought different. Well, we will have a drink out of the five shillings, said I. Most willingly, said Fiddler Jim, for he was not too proud for that. We entered the inn, and called for beer. 
The landlord was playing an accordion. "'Are you fond of music?' said I. "'Very much,' replied the landlord. "'We can give you a treat in that line if you have a large room,' said I, "'for one of my mates is a first-class violinist from Julian's Band, London, "'and I myself am a London concert singer, comic and sentimental.' "'Well,' said he, "'it would not pay me to engage you. "'There are so few people living about here.' "'Well,' said I, "'if you will give us our board and lodging for two days, "'we will not charge you anything further.' "'Have you got any bills printed?' he asked. "'No,' I replied, "'but we will write free orders and take them round to the stores and tents, "'and when we get the people here we will make it pay you, and ourselves too.' "'All right,' said he. "'I light the room by eight o'clock. "'And now what will you take to drink?' "'And we tried three nobblers of brandy.' "'Now, boys, to work,' said I. "'Get out writing paper and write out one hundred orders to "'Admit Bearer, Notice to the Inhabitants of Gisborne, at the Forest Inn a grand concert will take place this evening. Admittance free. Cockney Tom, manager. These we distributed ourselves at every tent within two miles round. Our programme was a very simple one, and our stage was made of brandy cases with carpet over them. There was a chair for Jim the Fiddler, and one for me, and Plumber George had to keep order as conductor. I commenced with a sentimental song, which was followed by a violin solo. Then came the landlord on the concertina, after which I sang Billy Nuts the Poet, and had to repeat it. Then came a selection of Scotch airs by Fiddler Jim, which was encored, and that ended the first part. Refreshments all followed for the benefit of the landlord. Part the second, comic song in caricature by myself, entitled Timothy Black, proved quite a sensation. Sang two more songs, then announced that after an interval of ten minutes the dancing would commence. The company began to get so numerous that we wondered where all the people came from in that lonely part of the world. I spoke to the landlord about passing round the plate. He entered into the idea with pleasure, going round with it himself, and collected over four pounds, and was requested to have the entertainment repeated the next night, which was agreed to, and we went to bed very tired. Next day found a spring of beautiful water, had a bathe, and returned to dinner. After a rest we had a look around the place, and saw in the afternoon what we had never seen before. A young man had been to Melbourne, and was returning to the diggings with a bullock dray loaded with provisions. He stopped at the Forest Inn, and you may easily imagine he was drunk, for he began to boast of the amount of money he was making. The landlord told him, as he had so much money, he had better shout ten pounds worth of champagne. All right, said he. Where is the money? asked the publican. "'You think I haven't got it?' said he. "'I will show you.' And then down went a ten-pound note, which the landlord put in his pocket. Up came ten bottles of fizz. Everybody drank some. The bullock driver got beastly drunk, and the landlord took him by the nape of his neck and kicked him into the road. Next morning I fancied I heard him sing the following lines. "'It was the cussed liquor that fired up my soul, and caused me for my duty to depart. So onward now my journey I'll pursue.' But golly, how my head begins to smart. So gee up, strawberry. The second night the room was crowded. The same programme was gone through as on the previous occasion, and nearly everybody got the worse for drink. They were very generous, however, and the subscription amounted to eleven pounds, and we all had a good booze at the close. The following morning, after breakfast, we prepared to start for the next township, Kyneton, about twenty miles distant. The road lay through the Black Forest. 
How it got the name of Black Forest was an account of the many black deeds that had been done in it. Numerous murders were committed, travellers were plundered, and the gold escort stuck up. It was twelve miles through, and had only one inn and a store passing the distance. There is another reason why it is called Black Forest, viz. that there was a Black Thursday in those days, which is recorded in the history of Victoria as the hottest day ever known there. On that day the forest took fire and burnt for weeks, being one great fire furnace for many miles, and when it died out every tree was as black as charcoal. From that day to the present it has been called the Black Forest. We left Gisborne with our treasury much increased, and we felt grateful thereat. Walked on about five miles into the forest, when we saw a house in the distance, which turned out to be a public house, and as it was very hot travelling, Fiddler Jim proposed to have a drink. If you like, said Plumber George. I don't care about it, said I, so I'll stay outside and mind the swags. I saw a flower garden close by the house, and being fond of flowers, I thought I would have a look at them, and did so but was surprised to see a blackboard there, on which was written, Here lies the body of William Brown, who was murdered by his mate, whilst coming down from the diggings. He afterwards confessed, and was hung in Melbourne in 1842. I wanted a nobbler after reading that inscription, and had one. On calling my mate's attention to the board, it made them shudder. Further on we met the gold escort, consisting of about thirty horsemen with drawn swords, carbines, and pistols, coming from the diggings. Some were guarding each side of the gold carts, and others acting as scouts, riding through the bush near the road. They all wore red jumpers and helmets. The next thing that we noticed was a poor bullock, knocked on the head, merely because he was worn out. We got through the forest at last, and it seemed a long twelve miles. It was then getting late, so we pushed on as well as we could but we couldn't walk fast, as our swags were too heavy, and Fiddler Jim began to complain that he could not go much further. As darkness came on, we lost our way, but found it again, and arrived in Kyneton about nine o'clock at night, completely knocked up. End of Part 2, Section 1